This episode is brought to you by Exceder. Exceder provides life science startups with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to accelerate R&D and commercialization. Lease the equipment you need with Exceder. Extend your runway, hit your milestones. As a podcast listener, you can redeem exclusive discounts with a growing list of biotech vendors and get $500 off your first equipment lease by using promo code TBSP on exceder.com slash rewards. Welcome to the Biotech Startups Podcast by Exceder. Join us as we speak with first-time founders, experienced scientists, serial entrepreneurs, and biotech investors about the challenges and triumphs of running a biotech startup. Gain actionable insight into navigating the life sciences industry in each episode as we explore the business of science from pre-seed to IPO with your host, John Chi. The purpose of the Biotech Startups podcast is to provide general insight into the ever-changing world of life sciences through the experience of a variety of guests. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast are at the user's own risk. The views expressed by guests and any employee of Exceder on the podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Exceder or content sponsors. Any appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement or recommendation of any product, service, or entity referenced in the podcast by Exceder or by its guests. In our last episode, we spoke with Steve Visco about his graduate school experience, witnessing the tech transfer boom, and his time at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. If you missed it, be sure to go back and give it a listen. Today, we're excited to continue our conversation, diving into Steve's experience with global competition against Sony, joint transfers with Dewpoint and Dow, IP strategy, and handling patent trolls. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. You spin out PolyPlus. Yeah. Um, you're staying both at Lawrence Berkeley and also you know, working with PolyPlus. How did you find your CEO? Well, we were lucky. So, you know, the way that worked is the tech transfer office organized with, I think it was Stanford too. I think it was Berkeley, Stanford. There may have been one other school, but I think it was basically Berkeley, Stanford, because Stanford was already doing this. I mean, they were actually, they were ahead of the game that way. Their medical school, they were filing a lot of patents, doing a lot of tech transfer, and they were pulling in quite a bit of revenue. So Berkeley reached out to them to help organize this event, right, where entrepreneurs who started companies would give presentations and in the audience would be a variety of like angel investors, venture cap firms, and you know other interested parties. So we give this presentation and yeah, we you know we got besieged, right, with companies that wanted to talk to us, but in that grouping was this guy Rudy Hurwich who did end up being the CEO and he started a company named Dymo Dymo was hugely successful. Came out of Berkeley, actually. It was a Berkeley company. I don't know if you've ever seen these kind of devices because it's pretty old school. It was before computer labeling systems. But he had the letters of the alphabet on a circular platform. And he would dial in letters, then pull this kind of trigger. And this adhesive material, right, this kind of sticky tape would come out. And it would raise, punch up into the polymer and create a raised letter. Yep. I mean, they were on the New York Stock Exchange. They were wildly successful. Oh, that was his company. That was his company. And they cool. eventually got bought out in an adverse raid. And so he cashed out. He was you know, quite wealthy, but he always wanted to duplicate the success of Dymo. So he became an angel 
investor. So he was always looking for something that he thought could have a big impact you know, on the world. And when we gave that talk, he got very excited. He said, this reminds me of Dymo. He asked us if we were willing to engage with him. He would help raise the angel money. He had a bunch of qualified investors. And then actually, he wanted me to take over the CEO position immediately. But when I told him like, hey, you know, I'm not ready for that. So he took it. He took the CEO slot. So we were lucky because this is a guy who had like 30 years of business experience negotiating deals and partnerships, mergers, you know, he had an unusual amount of experience coming to us with a very, you know, small company, but, you know, we started with four people. Who were the other, well, was it you two? So you and Rudy and then two more? Mostly faculty. So it was myself and then a guy named Luke Gardeyoung, who was professor of material science, Michelle Armand, He's really the father of polymer electrolyte batteries. And he was teaching at University of Montreal. And he also had a position in Grenoble, France. And then Maylin Liu, who's a professor at Georgia Tech. So we were the four originals. You know, since then, we've obviously you know, we brought in other people. But that was the founding group. Very cool. And if you're like remembering back to when you first started this, what was the battery landscape like? Like battery technology? Were you guys like in a brave new world? No, absolutely. So here's the thing that was really, really unusual is that, like I said, you know, the competing systems, at least in rechargeable batteries, were lead acid. That's 150-year-old technology. And nickel cadmium, that's probably 100 years old, right? And there were primer, you know, throwaway batteries, obviously. And so we start the company, we get the funding, we open the doors in 1991, and out of the blue, Sony in Japan introduces lithium ion. Oh so my God. Everything changes. Like, oh my God. <laughs> crazy time in a way to start a battery company. Yeah. So like the bar just went way up, right? So like what we thought we were competing with was now wildly different. And so in some ways we had to kind of reorient very quickly because we were working on a technology that at best would compete with lithium ion, but lithium ion was already commercial, right? And they were scaling. <sighs> yeah. So didn't make any sense at all. So we started immediately looking for much higher energy density battery couples, you know, like new chemistries, new approaches. And so what we did in a way is like for the first 10 years of the company's life, we became kind of a licensing company. So we did a lot of really fundamental advances in different approaches to battery chemistry, you know, where you could get these large jumps in performance. But we wouldn't do the engineering. It was mostly like early testing, filing fundamental patents. And then we licensed those patents. And then we started doing basically joint development agreements with large companies, right? Because at that point, there were chemical companies like DuPont and Dow and a company named Harkcelanese, right? That were not battery companies that wanted to get into the battery space. So they had some expertise. It could be polymers or thin film processing that they thought, you know, could make an impact in the battery space. So they were diversifying, looking to get in. In the early days of lithium ion, it was Japan, right? It was Panasonic and Sony and Japan Storage. There were a number of these Japanese battery companies. And actually, for a number of years, all the big battery meetings were in Japan because that's where all the activity was. Everybody wanted to meet with these Japanese companies. And you can imagine like the companies in the U.S. at that time, I mean, the big guys were Duracell, Everetti, Rayovac, you know, mostly selling batteries in supermarkets, right? And mm -hmm. drugstores. 
And then Johnson Controls was selling lead acid batteries, right, for ignition batteries, right, for cars. So, you know, those companies, this was a threat to them too, right? All of a sudden you have these rechargeable batteries that are starting to increase in performance and possibly displace their technologies. So all of those companies started lithium-ion programs internal to those companies, right? With the idea that they would catch up and compete, and every one of them failed. Like, they all failed miserably. And the explanation for their failure was that, well, the Japanese were just so far ahead, there's just no way to catch up, right? They were just too far ahead. They had made a lot of money in the early years of lithium-ion because they could charge a lot for it. And as it was scaling, the price was coming down. So the you know, American companies couldn't get in because they'd be losing money or at the, or breaking even. So they all kind of threw up their hands in defeat. But you know, one of the claims at that time was that, but it's only the Japanese. Nobody else is getting in, right? Nobody's going to be able to. And then, yeah, a year later, it's Korea, you know, Samsung, LG. SK. So all of a sudden, you've got three big lithium-ion companies producing and competing from Korea. And again, the response is like, okay, maybe the Koreans can get in. But like China, they'll never get in. You'll never see lithium-ion in China. And now China is the major player. So it's just Europe and the US that screwed up, right? That couldn't get in. And so now you have a situation where it's going to be a big part of the global economy, like battery production is kind of like becoming the new oil. So, you know, from the time we started to this point in time, nobody, I think, would have predicted that this landscape would have changed like that, right? Where you cannot pick up a newspaper without reading about battery tech, right? Mm-hmm. Without reading about what's happening with respect to building gigafactories and who's going to lead in not just in battery tech, but also in EVs. It's wildly different than when we first started. So when you first started, it sounded like you were doing a ton of intellectual property work. We were. And I'm like super interested to learn. Was that also just like, I'm going to just learn how to do this really well on the fly? Yeah. It's it's funny. It's certainly another story. So the way it happened is kind of subtle. Shortly after we started the company, and this is like barely two years in, right? And we're still tiny. We're kind of learning how to almost set up the lab, right? We're doing some kind of early experiments, trying to map out some strategies for new battery technologies. We were approached by a company in Silicon Valley that was making lead-acid batteries for Apple. So, you know, this is lithium-ion. They hadn't actually propagated, at least in the U.S., into laptops yet, right? So it was a little bit early for that. So this company was selling these obviously heavy lead-acid packs that would strap onto the back of like an Apple laptop. And they wanted to go public. When they went out and talked to analysts, analysts said, you know, lead acid is old school. No one's going to get excited about that. You're not going to be able to go public on that. They said, but you do have revenue, which is good. So they were making money. So the analyst said, you need to find a small company that's doing really exciting work in the battery space and then do like a merger, like merge them in and go public together. So they found us, they came to us and they asked us, are you interested? And so we they actually they had a very smart CEO. We talked for a while. We said, yeah, okay, we'll do this. Let's give it a try. So here we are two years in, we don't have anything approaching a product and we're going to go public, right? That actually, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I actually still have the red herring somewhere in my office that was written up, right? For the public offering. Anyway, there's a whole diligence process that has to happen for that, right? So our value to that company that was going to merge us in 
was our patents. We had three patents from Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And so the underwriters hired a uh, patent group, an IP, you know, intellectual property group, to look at our patents and then probably assess some kind of value, make sure that they, you know, they'll probably stand up in court, they're well-written. And in the process of doing that, they find out that Lawrence Berkeley Lab forgot to pay the maintenance fees, and then the patents are abandoned. I mean, that's the truth, right? Oh, and my God. It was like crazy town, absolutely crazy town. So this could have been a huge lawsuit against the lab, actually, right? Oh it was a God. major fuck up. So, and we're like freaked out, like, what? I mean, our patents are invalid now. I mean, they're in the public domain. So the lab's freaking out. And like I told you, in the early days of tech transfer, they were not hiring the best and the brightest. So these guys really screwed up. And so they had to petition the U.S. Patent Office, right? And this is a pretty rare thing that you're going to go and say, hey, can you reinstate these patents? Most of the time, they're going to say, yeah, no, you didn't pay the maintenance fee. They're gone. But they made a claim. And, you know, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. They made a claim that they had changed their mail stop on the Hill and that they weren't getting the bills. But you know, anybody who works with IP knows there are maintenance fees. So like you would say like, where the hell are these bills, right? They did get reinstated. God. And so that patent attorney that we used, that guy was clever. And that's how we ended up finding the company that we work with to write our patents. But with regards to IPO, so we're getting ready to actually to go out, right? And to go public. And a competing company that had a technology that we were pretty damn sure would never work, right? That would probably be dangerous, had a conditional contract with Motorola to sell them $100 million worth of batteries. But the condition was they had to meet the Motorola specification. Now, they had already gone public, right? And they had three public offerings. Their market cap was in excess of probably $3 billion. And two days before we're going public, their batteries are shipped to Motorola and they started exploding. And so they went from like $3 billion market cap to like junk stock overnight. Like, And the wow. company that was leading our IPO, they were invested in that. So they lost a ton of money that day. And they said, no battery IPOs. Like it just oh. shut down the whole thing. So that whole process stopped. Actually, it's probably good for us that it didn't happen. Yeah. Because, you know, it was too early. I mean, for us, it was definitely too early. But what we got out of that is basically a very clever patent attorney. And so we've worked with them since then. But then one other thing happened to Polypus that was really kind of instrumental. Maybe 10 years in, maybe 12 years in, I'd have to look up the exact date. There was another company, pretty shady company, that was following our intellectual property. So every time we filed a patent, and this was on a particular battery technology called lithium sulfur. Every time we file a patent, they would read our patents, which you can once they issue or publish. Right? So they publish. You can look at the published application. They would read our patents and then write some little addendum almost, you know, just some kind of nonsensical stuff and file. And so they were building up a patent portfolio on top of ours, in a sense, you know, which you can do. You know, it's basically that's patent trolling, right? You can patent troll people. You know, so we were writing very fundamental clever, you know, well-written patents. And they were just running stuff through the patent office with maybe, you know, a few claims that made sense. Most of them I don't think did. And then at one point they made some claims that they were going to start producing batteries, selling batteries. They were going commercial, right? They were going into manufacturing. And obviously they were going to be infringing 
our patents because we had all the fundamental rights to the technology. So they had a director of technology at the time who knew our patent portfolio pretty well. And he told the CEO, you know, we're going to be infringing Polypost. There's going to be litigation. So they preempted that by suing us. They sued Polyplus, yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. It's a type of lawsuit called an interference patent lawsuit, where they go into your patent, they copy your exact claims into their patent application, and then the patent office sees it as an exact duplicate, and then it launches this investigation, and then their claim is that we actually invented before them. So it's a way to kind of get the ball rolling. So they filed this interference lawsuit against us. And their CEO, now they were backed by a hedge fund, a guy named Jim Simons, probably worth in excess of $20 billion. So they had a lot of money to come at us. And their CEO came to Berkeley and told us, you know, we're going to burn your company to the ground. Literally use those words. And he said, you know, then we'll pick up the patents for a song because, you know, it's the end of your company. You'll have to sell. And so he left. And we had to make a decision like, do we fight? You know, because we had money in the bank, right? Do we fight or just kind of roll over and just take whatever deal they're going to give us? And we all made the decision like, fuck it, we're going to fight these guys. And that becomes a, well, in our case, it was going to become a technical argument. So the first thing, this intellectual property law firm that we're working with did a very smart thing. They reached out to the guy who literally wrote the book on interference law. I mean, there's literally like a Bible and hired him, right? So this guy, everybody who studies interference law, it's his book, right? So we hire him as our attorney. And then I put one of my guys on the case. I said, okay, this is all you do. You just read their claims and, you know, look at our patents and then work with this law firm, you know, that's going to fight for us and then build a case. And that took us a good year and it was expensive. We spent a lot of money so we're definitely, we're on the edge, like we can't do this much longer. So then the case was held in DC, right? There's the USPTO Appellate Court and we destroyed them. We like literally oh, oh. destroyed them. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where the judges started yelling at the opposition, their lawyers saying this case should never have seen the light of day. Wow. And you wasted all of our time and you wasted this company's time. And then they took it on appeal to the federal circuit and we beat them again. So then we had them. So they paid us some money. They, oh, my God. So that was a pretty scary process. So not something anyone wants to go through. But as we went through that, the scientist that we assigned to the case, he learned a lot about patent law. And he writes our patents now. Wow. And he's part of the team. So that's a very strong position to be in. So now our patents are written by not just a patent attorney, but someone who's a scientist who you know, works with the technology as part of the team, we still use the external law firm, right, for foreign filings and office actions. But our patents are really strong now, and they're very detailed. And we can file provisional patent applications in a day or an hour if we have to. So wow. that was certainly a learning process, a painful one, but in the end, it paid off. What a journey. For <laughs> I feel like this, especially, you know, whether it be in battery science, life science, anything that's like R&D heavy and requires like intellectual property protection, like, yeah. this could happen oh, to them. Yeah, for sure. And it, ha you know, and it happens all the time. But it's particularly scary for a small company, right? So, you know, if you're Pfizer, you know, if you're Pfizer and you get sued, and I'm sure they sue everybody anyway, right? they're all suing each other. 
yeah, it's a whole different ball game. That's just part of their budget, you know. And in some cases, they'll go to mediation, we'll come to some agreement. But if you're a small company, it can easily be the end of the company. I have like two questions because there's plenty of folks who are kind of it's now a thing to come from academia, like LBL. Yes. Yeah, it's more common now. They come out of tech transfer, they license some technology. Right. And they're starting the company. The first component that I'm kind of like interested in is like, it sounded like licensing patents is a good way to kind of bring in some cash. Yeah. And is that something you would recommend? I think it probably depends on the discipline. You know, for sure, you have to be very careful with licensing, right? Because one, of course, it can be a complicated negotiation. Depending on the field, in many fields, you can get a royalty on sales, right? In some cases, like in the battery field, that's become increasingly difficult to do because the margins, at least in, say, something like lithium ion, are razor thin. Right? Margins are really tight. So if you try to you know, negotiate a 5% royalty, you know, they're going to say no. Right? They're going to walk away. But there are ways to maybe have a royalty in the early part of sales. And that is, you know, the technology starts to grow. Obviously, with volume, you start to cut back on the royalty. But in any case, these negotiations can be quite tricky. And if you license all of your technology out, you know, you're going to have a hard time doing an IPO or getting acquired, right? Because what's the point, right? You know, you don't own the technology anymore. You basically license it. But, you know, there are other ways to license. You can license by geography, by application. So I would say it certainly worked for us. We were very careful how we did that, right? So when we did these licenses, they were usually very restrictive to either a geographic region of the world or a particular market or device or size of the market. So yes, I mean, it's really, yeah, it definitely helped us. There were licenses that I would say kept us going too. And in retrospect, it was absolutely the right deal because it turns out that it was kind of a hot area when we licensed it, but it would have been very difficult to commercialize. And so there were some big companies, I think they were, they clearly were doing some of this work internally and their thinking was, if it does go commercial, let's get the license now before it's wildly expensive. So they're all, you know, those kind of things to think about with regards to licensing. But you have to be careful if you do license, unless, you know, you're kind of naturally adept at these types of things, you're going to want someone who has some experience who can at least give you some advice. And there are companies out there that can definitely do that. There are plenty of companies that work on IP licensing. I think that's like great advice for everyone listening. It's not like a binary thing where it's like license it all or don't license it, like zero licensing, all licensing. It sounds like you be very, very strategic or else it really will pigeonhole you. Right, exactly. You effectively be selling your company out underneath you, right? I mean, yep. it might seem like a lot at the time, but if it's really important technological advance, then you have to be very careful how you license it. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly teaches you a lot about deal structure too when you're going through this kind of licensing process. So yeah, it's a learning process, but I would say be careful and don't be afraid to walk away from a deal. I mean, we had some negotiations with Korean companies where we literally kicked them out of our conference room, told them to go back to Korea. <laughs> wow. Well, they're tough negotiators. So you have to yeah. really, you know, basically said, you know, no, we're not doing this deal. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's, that must've been intense. I was like thinking back to like, when you were mentioning that growing up, you were an avid reader and writer and it's like, Patents, that's like, it comes back. The ability, yeah, yeah. I'm sure the quality of the patent is how well you write the thing. Yeah, that's right. And how you create the claim set and the specification 
So, you know, that's a thing unto itself, right? So at some point, hopefully you're not in litigation, but at some point, so probably someone's going to challenge your patent, right? And actually, that's the other thing about patenting. You don't, you certainly would not want to rely on one patent. I mean, you know, virtually anybody who's working in any area where, there, you know, a big advance is going to mean big business, you know, you're trying to create a picket fence around the invention to make sure there's no daylight, you know, it's going to close up all those holes. So yeah, writing the first good patent is kind of step one, but there's a lot of strategy in how you write these patents and how you write the specification, you know, so that you can, in later continuations, you can pull out more of that spec and then create claims that cover what you're really doing inside the company. Because sometimes when you make these discoveries, there are certain aspects of the discovery, you're not sure how it's going to end up in a product. And as you take the technology forward, you say, oh, wow, this is really important. Let's get better coverage around that. So it's definitely kind of evolving. Yeah, it's it's rare that you're going to go to market with a single patent. And anytime there's a litigation, you know, a patent litigation, you almost always see both sets of attorneys are going to walk into that courtroom with a stack of patents, you know, yeah. eye, right? And that's yeah. kind of like saying like, yeah, we got a lot of patents, so don't fuck with us. And then the other yeah. guy's going to have, if he doesn't have a stack that's kind of equally large, He's in probably in trouble. I mean, it's just, oh, it's just kind of the way it goes. So yeah. they got to be well-written and you kind of have to have a bunch of them. And then you get into a whole different issue, which is where do you patent? It's relatively inexpensive to patent in the United States. It's quite expensive to patent overseas because you have to have it translated. So, you know, there's something called PCT, which is like, a you know, kind of holds the European countries for you for a certain period of time. But then you have to make a decision after that period of time is over, okay, which countries? Germany, France, Spain. So every one of those countries, that patent's going to have to be translated and they'll have their own office actions. And the EU, the European Union, they can see your patent claims in a different light than the way the USPTO will see them. So you have your patent just sail through the USPTO and then get stopped in the EU. It just means you're going to have to go through multiple iterations so it's a very complicated process, actually. And so did you learn this just the hard way? Yeah, like, absolutely. All of it was the hard way. Oh. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't seem like there's like a playbook for this. I'm sure that, you know, obviously they teach this in, in law school, but a lot of it should be taught in graduate school in the sciences. Because first of all, even if you have an academic position, right, and you are inclined to file patents, it helps, right? Knowing a bit about how all this works. But certainly for those students that are going to go out as entrepreneurs and launch companies, IP is going to be for sure a big part of their protection against large companies just kind of taking it, right? Walking away with the technology. I realize you're in the battery industry, but the first thing I think about is like the CRISPR dispute right now. Yeah. That's right. Which is like a patent dispute, like all over the world. That's right. And that's going to involve billions and billions of dollars in revenue. That's a huge discovery. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the other thing too, is that, and this gets back probably more to the academic environment, but when you see something, right, it's like you get very excited, you know, and particularly if you run a couple of tests and it looks like you're right about discovery, it's real. And, you know, the mistake people oftentimes make is, they give a presentation at a conference where they give something away. You know, they're, hopefully they're not so stupid they're going to present on it. Then it's over. It's a public disclosure. It's over. 
But quite often people will make the mistake of saying something at a conference that will later come back to haunt them. Or in some cases, you know, they just forget to file overseas within the time frame. So they'll get the U.S. patent, but that's it, right? And that happened in the battery space with lithium ion phosphate, which is used as a positive electrode in lithium ion batteries. And it's starting to get increasingly important because, you know, say in a typical, say, Tesla battery, there's obviously a fair amount of cobalt in the positive electrode. Cobalt largely comes from the Congo. One, it's expensive. Two, it's mostly it's like child labor, probably verging, you know, on the edge of outright slavery. So there are a lot of ethical issues around cobalt right now. And so there's this move to lithium ion phosphate. Well, that was invented, you know, probably the most important patent was John Goodenough's, which you know, he got the Nobel Prize for some of that, but he didn't file overseas. So China, which of course is a oh. huge producer, yeah, they pay no royalties at all. That's just oh my goodness. public domain. The rest of the world, it's all public domain. Does this mean for a startup that they have to have a global IP strategy out the gate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In some cases, companies will be a bit too aggressive, you know, and there's just like patent everywhere, you know, all around the world. That's quite expensive. You know, most companies will be much more strategic than that. So in the battery space, right, obviously you're going to grab the US, Japan, Korea, China, and Europe. Those would be the obvious places to file patents. There are other places you could think about, you know, Brazil and you know, Australia. There are, certainly, that starts to get pretty expensive. You can probably not file in those countries. But again, it's an economic decision, but there are certain places you would absolutely want to file. And those are probably going to be pretty similar for patenting in pharma. You know, obviously India becomes important. They're big producers. So it changes it like India wouldn't be so important for the battery space, at least not yet. It may well be one day, but not yet. So yeah, those are economic, strategic decisions that can be a bit tricky, but patenting is not cheap. You know, it adds up. And I was going to say, like, it's super cool that you're able to bring it in-house. Like you had, yeah. you know, and you yourself, you're able to do it and you have like someone who's now well-versed on both sides. Yeah. And you know, the other thing about that, if you can do that, if you can bring it in-house, there's a huge benefit there with regards to how the patent gets structured, right? Because typically, as a scientist, you have an idea, okay, look, you think it's patentable, then you're going to call in a patent agent who will sit with you, and you're going to describe what you've done, and then the last questions. But you know that you're educating them on what your discovery is, and it's hard to be jack of all trades, which IP attorneys kind of have to be, right? So they they do specialize. Like quite often, you'll have patent attorneys that specialize in kind of materials science, like batteries and maybe semiconductors. They, you know, there might be some overlap between the two. And pharma is usually totally different, right? That's a separate group of people. But in any case, you know, you're trying to educate someone about your particular invention. And, you know, they're not experts in that, right? So they can miss something or they may not see some claims that could be quite important because they don't quite understand the reach of the technology. When it's your team member, they live and die by that stuff. So they really know it. And then they get excited in the sense like, oh, wow, if we file these claims and we do X, Y, Z, then that'll generate, you know, some additional claims that we can cover. And so it's just a different way to evolve your patent portfolio. You know, so I think it's good to have someone inside. Yeah, I'm trying to think about like what a early stage company founders like think about like early hires. Is this something where it's like it might be an early hire that you may want to consider? So we didn't do it that way, right? We started with an IP firm. I think it's a little tricky. I mean, that, that would be an, probably an expensive hire. 
for a company that's just starting and you may not have generated a whole lot of IP yet, but it's something, you know, the question is like, you know, at what size of company do you do that? It's certainly a good hire, you know, and in some cases, you know, like any company that starts to grow, it does matter what your degree is, but at the same token, not everybody who has a PhD or a master's degree is really good in the lab. And so you start to see what talents people have as they do different jobs. And sometimes you just find that person like, wow, they really seem to love working with a patent agent or the patent attorneys, right? And they really seem to have a feel for this. And that may just be the way that person evolves within your company or you hire one. But, and I think ultimately, you know, I'm sure, obviously all big companies have their own patent attorneys and usually have external counsel as well. But, you know, for us, it certainly worked out well. Interesting. So it kind of seems like maybe that was like two steps. You first start with a IP focused firm or a, a big law firm that might have a strong IP practice. Right. And then you have someone on your team who is maybe pure science at first. Right. You know, because obviously, like you said, they have to communicate about what is the technology and then the IP. Yeah. And, you know, as you get further down that path, you know, there are companies now that do IP strategy. <laughs> you know, it gets pretty complex as you generate a larger and larger portfolio. But that's a whole discipline into itself. Actually, Joe Sino, his dad was also Joe Sino, right? Yep. That's exactly what he did was intellectual property strategy, like how to monetize patents and just how to grow your portfolio strategically. So that's a specialty within intellectual property. And there are special firms that do just that, right? IP strategy. So if you look at a big company like Wilson Sonsini, I mean, they're really quite big, right? They'll have all of that. They'll have classic IP attorneys who write patents. They'll typically have some level of IP strategy, litigation, not cheap, but they'll have it, right? Yep. In our case, we're lucky to have it inside. That's all for today's episode of the Biotech Startups Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our insightful conversation with Steve Bisco, covering his experience with tech transfer, global intellectual property, and patent litigation. To learn more about Steve's journey, be sure to tune into our next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again on the Biotech Startups Podcast for part three of Steve's journey, where we would discuss tips on applying for grants, the ins and outs of strategic corporate financing, and talent acquisition and retention. The Biotech Startups Podcast is brought to you by Exceda. Don't want to miss an episode? Make sure to search for Biotech Startups Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and click subscribe. To learn more about our leasing program, visit our website, www.exedr.com. We provide research labs with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to support a path to exceptional outcomes. On behalf of the team here at Exceda, thanks for listening.